You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning again, and for those of you visiting, welcome to Black Forest Chapel. We're glad you're with us. Um, as Craig mentioned, it's just um, definitely a joy that we can gather again as God's people. I've been talking to friends around the country, other pastors, and uh, we had some friends visiting in town this past week, and many churches are still unable to open at all. Um, some churches are saying it's going to be the better part of a year before they can come back together and because of the, the sheer size of the church and, and managing all of those people and all the processes in place. So um, we, are, we are small enough <laughs> that we have the pleasure and the privilege to be able to gather as God's people. So we're thankful for that. Um, thankful we can be here and celebrate the Lord's communion together for the first time. We were doing that from a distance um, through the video recordings, but this is much better. So uh, thank you for being here this morning. We are in a series... Um, we just started last week in the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Exodus. It's early on in the Bible, so you should be able to find that right after Genesis, right? And it's really a continuation of Genesis. We talked last week about how it begins really in the Hebrew with the word and. So this is a story that is continuing. It is God's story. It is the story of Israel. It's our story. And so sometimes we, we separate Old Testament and New Testament in such a way that we think that God is different, and he is not. He's the same. Um, how he's interacting with his people, how he has chosen to save through Jesus, definitely changes with the, the covenant of grace in the New Testament. But he is the same God. And there are going to be some themes as we walk through this together, and I hope that you'll read Exodus um, as we go, as, as often as you're able, just read through and start to pick up on some of these major themes. And last week we talked about suffering, we talked about sovereignty, and that will continue on um, through this book. We also see a lot about God's promises, God fulfilling his promises, God's plans, God's purposes. We see and, and look at God's holiness and the glory of God, that he deserves our worship, that he deserves all of the glory. We talked about that last week. Today we're going to talk about what it means to fear God, fearing God, and how that's a good thing, to be in reverence of God, to be in awe of Him, to fear Him and nothing else. And so I was playing around with a title, how do I, what do I do with this, and just kept it simple with fear God, but you could put in fear God, comma, not, and then put a space and fill in whatever you want. Right? Fear God, not man. Fear God, not circumstances. Fear God, not even death. Right? We don't fear anything else. We fear God and nothing else. And when we do that, it goes well with us. It's, we make good decisions. There are good outcomes that come from that. When we begin to fear man or fear other things, then we begin to really worship those other things. We begin to obey whatever we fear. We fear man, we become people pleasers. And ultimately, we start to deny our God. Jesus warned us about that, about denying him. But when we fear man, we fear rejection, we fear what they might say, what they might think, and we don't want to live like that. That's not who we are. 
So fearing God leads to good decisions. Fearing God leads to good outcomes. And we're going to take a look at uh, the second half of chapter 1 in Exodus as it relates to fearing God. And we're going to be through a few other sections of Scripture too. I really want us to see these themes and start to highlight those. This is going to be important, I think, for our church and for our own hearts that we have a, a proper view of God. Too often in this world, God is, is an afterthought. He's a break glass in an emergency type of situation, right? God is holy. He is, he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of everything. And yet we treat him as if he's just an inconvenience at times because we don't get the things that we want at the times that we want them. And so we're going to put God back on his throne as we open God's word. He never left, but we, we have our views, our perspectives need to be changed. Our minds need to be renewed as we open the scripture. So if you would, let's, let's uh, if you pray with me as we open God's word, and then we'll read some of Exodus, and we'll see what God has to say to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for all of your attributes that we talked about last week, that you are good, that you are just, you are righteous, you are holy, you are perfect, you are full of mercy and full of grace, you have compassion on your people. Lord, forgive us for when we question you, and at times we question your goodness. When if we would just look in the scriptures, we see your heart throughout. We see you saving us. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for these stories. Thank you that they point toward the need of a Savior and a Savior to come, because that's your heart. Thank you for the New Testament scriptures. We see the Savior who has come and who has died on the cross for our sins and has been raised to life on the third day, seated at the right hand of you, Father, interceding on behalf of the saints. He's, He's building his church, Lord. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and we will have eternal life with him. Thank you, Lord, that you came and you're coming again, and your promises are good because you are good. And so, Lord, how can we question your love when you sent your son? Please forgive us for that. Lord. We repent this morning corporately as your people. We are a grumbling, forgetful people, as we know that Israel has been as well. Teach us, Father. Let this be an example to us as we open the scriptures and as we look at this story in Exodus. Help us to remember who you are, the great works that you've done, and that you are the same God today and forever. Teach us what, what it means to fear you this morning. Holy Spirit, would you speak through our hearts? Many of us, Lord, fear many things. But we need to fear you and you alone. Help me to be clear, Lord. Help me to be um, helpful as, as we um, together consider the goodness and, and your grace as you pour out your love on us through the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Can everyone hear me okay? Is it? Okay. I'm not cutting in and out. Good. So we're in Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 15. Last week... You may recall that God was uh, reminding us of his promises through his people, through Israel. 
and that his promises were being fulfilled. The, the people were what? They were multiplying. They were growing. They were, they were filling up the whole land, so much so that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the new king who didn't know Joseph, he began to get a little bit scared, right? He's worried now because they're too strong. And, and if any other nation broke out in war, and if Israel joined them, they would easily overtake Egypt and the Egyptians. So he didn't want that to happen. But at the same time, there was an economic benefit. There was a benefit to these people being there. He didn't want to lose them. He didn't want them to, to leave the land. And so his brilliant plan, his scheme, right, his, his shrewd plan, that's still shrewdly with them, the Bible says. So he thought it was really wise to start, start putting pressure on them, right, to make them um, work really hard, to ruthlessly put them into slavery. And so Pharaoh has plan A, right? This is his brilliant plan. Plan A is let's deal shrewdly, let's stay multiply. So we're going to stop them from multiplying. We still want the benefit of their presence, but we don't want them to join our enemies. So we're going to get taskmasters, put them over them, right? And we're going to afflict them with heavy burdens, verse 11 says. So they afflicted them with heavy burdens. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a decree we will stop God's people. We will stop these Hebrews. We will stop Israel from multiplying. That is, that is Pharaoh's decree as the, as the incarnate son of the god Ray in Egypt. Being a god himself, this is his decree. I will stop them from multiplying. And so they started building cities, and he started expanding his kingdom through the hard labor of Israel. But then the king of kings the God of the universe who overrules all other kings did something different. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel in verse 12. So plan A, this is what we're going to do. This is the wise thing to do. And God, we talked about last week, he destroys the wisdom of the wise. You cannot thwart his plans and his purposes. They oppressed Israel and oppressed God's people. And they continued to multiply. They grew even stronger. The king of Egypt says, I will stop you from growing. And the king of kings says, no, I will, I will cause them to grow, no matter what you do. This is the God that we serve. This is the same God that we serve today. And so plan B, let's make this even more ruthless, right? We're going we're gonna to put them into some really terrible slavery. It's going to be bitter, hard service. Their whole life is just going to be horrible and terrible. And we're going to continue to expand our kingdom. And God says, no. I've got a better plan. My, my plan A still stands no matter what. And they continued to grow. So even as Pharaoh is having his cities expanded and his kingdom expanded through all of this work, God is expanding his kingdom and his nation and his people even more so. This is the economy of God. He can't be outdone, right? And so now we move to plan C. Pharaoh has some other plans that he thinks since the first couple plans weren't working, of course he can overrule that and do something else. He's smart. He's a god. And so verse 15, let's read 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? 
The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the, the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So the king of Egypt has plan C now up his sleeve, right? And can you see the progression of evil? Can you see the seared conscience of those who do not believe in God, who do not fear God? Pharaoh fears everything else. I thought he was a god. I thought he was in control of all these things. I thought he had absolute power, absolute authority. Why should he fear people that are growing in multitude? Because if you don't fear God, you fear everything else, right? And so he's fearing these people, these Hebrews. And so his next plan is to kill them. And we see this as just a continuation of sinful man and the progression of evil. In Romans 3, Romans 3, verse... uh, Start in verse 9, talking about how no one is righteous. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, whether they have become worthless. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Why is that? There is no fear of God before their eyes. People that don't fear God are willing to do whatever they have to to protect everything that they have because they fear everything and everyone. And this is, this is the direction that the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, is taking. He's going from putting them in the hard labor and trying to, trying to break their morale and break their spirit and cause them to, uh, to be in despair and discouragement and bitter hard labor, and yet God is multiplying them. So the next step is what? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill the, the, the male sons that are born. And this is under the cloak of darkness. This is, this is deceitful. He doesn't even have the courage to do it himself. If he's really worried about a military uprising, why didn't he just use the military to go after them? Instead, what he, he, he calls midwives in. And he calls these Hebrew midwives, and he's asking them to take on the role of murderers, of assassins against God's people. And the, it says the, they're Hebrew midwives, and there's some... There's, a, there's plenty of information out there. Are, are they really Hebrew midwives? Are they just midwives to the Hebrews? Were they really Egyptians? Um, their names are actually Semitic. Their, na- their names are Hebrew in origin, so um, it, it kind of makes sense that they're probably Hebrew midwives, even though they live in Egypt. Um, they, they, they may not have had families of their own. That's why God gave them families as a reward for fearing him. Um, perhaps they were Egyptians that have been assimilated and understand who God is because they served the Hebrews as midwives. We're not exactly sure. Um, based on everything I've read, I believe they probably are Hebrews. Um, and, and the fact that uh, there's only two of them that he's asking to do this work, and we saw how many of them actually um, 
were part of the Exodus later on in the story. They, they were most likely like head nurses. They were, they were in charge of all of the midwife work. It's possible that they were just two that he chose to do the work. Uh, we don't have enough information to, to really figure that out. But ultimately, we know that they were called in kind of secretly. And so the idea here was when, when, the, when the Hebrew mother gives birth on the birth stool, while there's still fatigue and disorientation and all that comes with, with giving birth, if it was a male, they were to kill it then. Now, we don't know exactly how they were going to communicate that, but perhaps there were plenty of babies that were stillborn or had some other complications. If it was female, they can let it live. But if it was male, they were to kill the male babies. So there was a secrecy, secrecy component. There was a cowardice here. Because... You know, when the Hebrew midwives told Pharaoh that, well, we didn't do this, you know, they feared God is why they didn't do it, but they, they told Pharaoh, we didn't do this because the midwives are so vigorous. By the time we got to their house, they don't even need a midwife. Well, what's their, their occupation doesn't exist then. It doesn't make any sense, right? So, so most people believe they were lying. They provided a lie to circumvent Pharaoh's desire to murder, to create infanticide for the Hebrews. The fact that they could have done it proves that probably they, they were midwives. They actually showed up for the deliveries. They actually did that work. God dealt well with them. And so as a side note, some might say, well, then what you're telling me, Mike, is that lying is justified as long as, as, long as it's for a good reason. I can lie. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. The Bible is very clear that lying is a sin. Right? We're not to bear false witness. We, we know that lying is, is not of the Lord. We're not to lie to one another. We see instances in Scripture, this being one of them. If you think of Rahab, the prostitute who hid the spies and then told the men who were sent by the king of Jericho in Joshua 2. Um, uh, all the men escaped. They, they left out the gate before the gate was closed. If you, if you hurry, you could probably catch up with them. And really, they were, they, were in, they were on the roof. They were being hidden by Rahab. And why? Because she feared God. The hearts of the people were melting because of this God of the Exodus and all the things and stories they were hearing. And so she obviously lied as well. Are these prescriptive? Are these things, principles we're supposed to be carrying on, that it's good to lie? Well, these were desperate situations. These, this was life and death. This was about a whole nation, a race of, of male babies that were going to be killed. God never condones the lying, but he's pleased with their hearts. They were blessed because they feared God. And they, would, they, they chose to lie instead of murder. God was pleased with them. And so Pharaoh has plan C. It doesn't work out. And what, what happens with this edict? I declare, once again, Pharaoh is declaring, I decree you will go and kill all the male babies. And God says, no. And actually, because you did that, they're going to multiply and grow even more. Right? Verse 20. So God dealt with the, the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Can you, can you just picture this guy? Just going back to his, he's going back to his chambers. He's going back to his throne. He's sitting, sitting on his throne. This, he's all full of the makeup and all the glitter and all the, all the fun stuff. And he's got the staff and all the shiny things. And he's very, very important, right? 
He's got all this history and he's this God and all his advisors are lined up and all these people that he controls and they could, he could have them killed instantly and they're all lined up and they're kind of, their heads are kind of bowed and what do you say, right? Every time he does an edict and he says, stop this from happening, it, it happens more and more and more. You imagine just his frustration, the embarrassment, the anger. Can you see why he's getting, he's, 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 he's getting more bold? and his willingness to stop this. God is frustrating his ways. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You can't stop the Lord. He's, he's going to do what he needs to do. And so not only do the people grow and very strong, because the midwives, in verse 21, fear God, he gave them families too. He just keeps pouring on the insult, right? He keeps showing his power, and he keeps growing his people. And so what's plan D? He, has, he just keeps going. He's got a playbook. He just keeps going through the next one. I can just see him in his chamber like, okay, that one didn't work, and that one didn't work, and... Not, what else can I do without actually doing this myself and getting my hands dirty? Well, I'm going to tell, tell all the people, because they're, they're full of dread, and I've created enough fear, and I'm going to command all the people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, cast into the Nile. Let every, every, let every female live. So that's plan D. And, and we'll see next week in the birth of Moses how God overcomes that. Do you see this pattern that we see in Scripture? That the more... You try to oppress God's plans the more that he is glorified when they take place. This is throughout the scriptures. And he's the same God today. I'm just going to take us through a little, a few other examples here as an encouragement. I don't know if you're reading the Bible. I don't know if you're in the scriptures right now, but you need to be. This is the encouragement that we get. Unless we read, we're not going to, we're not going to remember, right? We're not going to be encouraged. We're not going to be built up. We're not going to be fed. If we, uh, we, we, once again, we see this pattern um, throughout God um, stacking the deck. Well, it's not really stacking, but kind of stacking the deck against himself, making things impossible so that all of mankind looks at it and says, that can never happen. That will never happen. Man is too strong. God is too weak. And God makes, he creates the situation so that only he can save. Only he can receive the glory. And this happens time and again. If you turn to Judges, turn with me if you have your Bibles, Judges chapter 6. And so I'm just going to pick a few points here, but we can see this throughout. We're going to see this throughout the book of Exodus. Remember, Exodus was, is meant to be remembered. We talked about that last week. This, this is a story of, of freedom from bondage, right? And freedom to a promised land, a, a, a place and a people that rests with God. So they're, they're being freed from bondage and free to a life with God. Just as we as believers in Jesus Christ, we're, we're freed from our sin because of his sacrifice. We're freed to a life with Christ, an eternal life with him. Right? Moving from, from slavery to salvation. And we see God continuing to do this. Even as we move, move through the book, 
the, the rest of the, the book of Exodus and into Joshua and the conquest of, of Canaan, the conquest of the promised land. God's doing that. God, the Lord's the one that saves the day. It's, the battle is the Lord's, right? And yet he still chooses to use us. He wants us to be a part of it, to trust him, to glorify him, to worship him. And how gracious is he and faithful, even in the faithlessness of God's, of, of, of his people who continue to grumble and, and move away from him. He always brings them back. And so we see in Judges 6, the story of Gideon. A lot of you know the story. Maybe some of you don't, or we need to be reminded of it. We see this pattern, right? Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, we'll just kind of bounce through a few sections here. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the people become forgetful. They become complacent. They begin to um, you know, join in idolatry with the nations around them. They begin to do things that are abominable, that are evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord lovingly disciplines his people. There are consequences as part of the covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. But if you forsake my word, if you don't do the things I'm asking you to do, if you don't keep my law, there's going to be consequences because I, I want you to be different. I want you to be set apart. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years, gave them into the hand of another nation. And the Midianites, as, we, as you read through this, they were taking all of Israel's crops. They were taking all of their food. Right? There was no sustenance left in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. Verse 5, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, and they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And what's the next part of the pattern here? And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And what's the next step in the pattern? The Lord hears. Have you been crying out to him lately? Have you been asking him, Lord, why? What are you doing, Lord? You're in good company here. And he hears us. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet. So before he solves the problem, before he removes the burden, he wants to remind them of who he is and who they are. He sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. So remember that the Exodus is meant to be remembered. God's reminding them, remember what I did for you? Remember what, remember what happened here for your people? And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. They feared other gods. They stopped fearing the one true God, started to fear others. And so he reminded them. Verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabeth at Oprah and belonged to Joash the Bezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful, all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Is, does that sound like a familiar phrase, a familiar complaint from our hearts? 
well, Lord, I, you did all these other great things, and you have all these promises, and you said you were going to do this, and you said, where, where is and, and Gideon, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? Well, we just saw why. The people were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Sometimes when we're in our times of crying out to the Lord, which is good, which is necessary, sometimes we cry out with a self-justification, a sense of self-righteousness. I deserve better. I didn't do anything to deserve this, Lord. Why are you doing this? I'm such a good person, right? I go to church. Now that we're in church, I socially distance that church. Right? I use at least a half a gallon of hand sanitizer every time I look at somebody. Lord, I'm doing all these great things. I'm trying to protect people. I'm trying to walk with you. I give my tithe. I, I serve my time. You know, sometimes that's how it feels, right? I serve my time in, in my ministry. I don't cuss. I don't, you know, I don't swear. I try not to yell at people. And, well, I, I, I don't cuss and swear in front of other people. And then once you, start, once you start to get down to it, you start to be like, oh, yeah, Lord, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm a sinner. I repent, Father. And that should be the place that we start. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're putting God on his throne, putting him where he belongs, in our minds and in our hearts. And when we put him there and realize who he is and what he has done, then we put ourselves down here. We can't help but bow down. We can't help but get on our knees. We have to get a little bit lower because of who he is. Fearing God helps us to worship, Right? But when we don't fear God, all we do is question. So here's Gideon. What were all these wonderful deeds? <laughs> You've, uh, but now the Lord has forsaken us, he says. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? So here's the solution. The world's crumbling around you. Things are, things are terrible. The church is, is, is struggling. People around me are, are not doing well. Everyone's walking around in chaos and despair and hopelessness and all these things. And, Lord, why are you letting all this happen? Why can't I go to Starbucks the way I used to? Why can't I do this? Why can't I go shopping? Why do I have to have curbside pickup? Why do I have to have all these problems? Why is my neighbor always complaining now? Why are all these hardships? Why are all these financial hardships happening? Why are all these things taking place? Have you forsaken us? And the Lord turns to us as people. He says, I'm, I've sent you. I'm creating a ripe environment for the gospel to go out, for the good news to go out. I'm showing people they can't save themselves. They, they, they can't control everything. None of these leaders are supreme in power. Only God is. So they will come and they will complain and they will, they will come with their hopelessness and they will come with their despair and they will come with their questions and you will have the answers because you have me. Do I not send you? Verse 15, and he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. This is exactly who God uses every time. And yet we sit and look in a mirror, self-deprecating, saying, I'm nothing, I'm not worth anything, God can't use me, I'm so weak, I'm so limited, I can't speak well, I don't remember things very well, I'm not talented, I'm not skilled, I'm not like him, I'm not like her. And God said, that's perfect. That's exactly who I want to use. 
We've got to stop believing all these lies. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. That's the key. I will be with you. He said it to Joshua. He said it to Moses. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Did you know how many there are when this, when this takes place? And you'll see this if you go to chapter uh, 8, verse 10, but you kind of see the breakdown. It, it, God gives us numbers for a reason. <laughs> he wants us to see what he's doing. 135,000 soldiers. 135,000 will be struck down as one man. So God is getting him ready to do this work. Chapter 7. So Gideon getting his army ready. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many. So he's got about 32,000 people to take on 135,000. 32,000 people. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you, there's too many of them to give the Midianites into their hand, uh, to, for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, say my own hand has saved me. So God, God is saying, there's too many of you because I, I, I deserve the glory because it's my battle and I'm going to give you the strength to win. So you need to get rid of some of these people. There's just way too many. He's stacking the deck, the deck against himself. And so... Uh, my own hand, uh, says verse 3, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So people that are fearful and trembling, <clears throat> God says you can go home. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Okay, so 10,000 <clears> versus 135,000. And God said, well, verse 4, the people are still too many. So take them down to the water, and I'm going to test them for you there. So depending on how they drink the water, God was going to sift out more, right? And so the ones who lapped the water like a dog, who like bent over and licked the water, those are the ones that God wanted, right? And there was 300 of those. So God said, that, that, those, that's, that's your army. That's, that's who you're going to take into battle. Not only the least of the tribe of Manasseh, the least in his father's house, then he has these 300 yahoos or lapping water like dogs by the river, right? It's like that. Those are, those are perfect. That's exactly what I want, right? Do you see how God just, let's just set the stage to make this a nice show, right? Because I'm God, and he's, he's got to take care of them. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And all the others go, every man to his home. Verse 9, And the same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. God gave the victory. It was the Lord's battle, right? And we see this throughout. 
um, as we continue to move on in, in the Old Testament. First Samuel 14, you don't have to turn there, but Jonathan, remember that story of Jonathan and his armor bearer and Saul and his whole army, they're hiding in caves, they're afraid of the Philistines and, and Jonathan will have nothing to do with this. He's a man of faith and a man of action and so he takes his armor bearer, he's like, come on, we're going to go over and we're going to take out this, this Philistine garrison and he, he has the worst strategic advantage ever. He's climbing a cliff up to these giant warriors who since youth have been fighting and who are and very imposing and they're the only ones in the land who have swords. Only Saul and Jonathan have a sword at this point. They've, they've cornered the market on blacksmithing, and so nobody even has a sword. And so Jonathan's climbing up with this armor bearer, and he gets up there, and they kill 20 Philistines in a very small section in a very short period of time. Why? Because he has faith in the Lord. Because he knows the battle is the Lord's. Because he fears God and not all his circumstances. Everyone else feared the circumstances, and they're hiding in caves, and they're withering away, being rejected by God. Instead, Jonathan feared God. He, he was in awe of this living God who he heard stories about. And, and the Exodus, can you imagine as a young boy learning about God did what? And he did that? And how did he do that? And that's amazing. And I want to do that. So I'm going to, let's go. Let's climb up the mountain. Let's see what God can do. And God does it. And they kill 20. And then what happens? Then the earth shakes and a great panic ensues. And they start killing each other. And then, and then now the, the, the hearts of the rest of the army of Israel start to, 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 to awaken now, right, because of a faithful couple of men. And what does it say at the end of that? The Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord did it. God did that. Yes, he uses servants. Yes, he wants people to be faithful, but ultimately he's the one that does it. These were incredible odds. This should never have happened. This was impossible, but not for him. Later in the same, in the same book, in 1 Samuel 17, we see David and Goliath. Impossible. It's a story that we love. We love this story. Why? Because it shows God's power and God's might, and it shows the faith of a young man who's willing to stand up to this incredible giant. And really, the weight of the entire army, the weight of the entire nation is on him, because if he loses, all of Israel has to become a slave to the Philistines. He can't even wear the armor. It doesn't fit. And he takes his sling and five smooth stones, and he runs out. He runs toward the battle line. And he sinks this thing right in the Philistine's forehead. David did that, but, but God saved Israel that day. Do you think God would allow his servant, whose house would eventually come the Messiah, to die on that battlefield that day? God's purposes and plans could not be stopped. We'll keep going. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? 450 prophets of Baal all chanting and trying to wake up their God, and Elijah's sitting over by the tree just laughing at them. When he yell, yell a little louder, maybe they can't hear you. Maybe he's off reading a book. Maybe he's at Barnes & Noble. Maybe you need to give him a call. I don't know where he's at, right? But your gods aren't coming down. This was, this was the ultimate showdown. This was the first reality cooking show, right? Let's, you each get a bull, and we're going to make an altar and put the bull, and we'll, we'll cut the bull up, and then whoever's God rains fire down and cooks this food, right? Cooks this thing up. That's the true God. And 450 prophets of false God trying and chanting and doing all the things that they can do and nothing. And Elijah finally gets up and kind of cracks the neck and does the thing, right? Because he knows who his God is. He fears the living God. And he, and he puts the bull in and he, he, he digs a trench. And not only does he have the stones and the, and the meats and he, he pours water multiple times. Keep going. Keep, just soak it. Just fill it up. Right? And then he prays to God, and God rains down fire and burns up the sacrifice. He burns up the bull. 
He burns up the wood, the stones, the dust, the water, everything. Let's make no mistake who the real God is here. Later in 2 Kings 6, Elisha and the king of Syria. The king of Syria is trying to get the upper hand on Israel. Why do, we, why do they keep moving? Why do they keep finding out what we're doing and what our plans are? Well, there's this man of God there, and he keeps telling them, well, let's go take this guy out. And Elisha and his servant come out of their tent in the morning, and there's an encampment, a full army all the way around them, chariots and horses all around. And the servant is fearful. What are we going to do now? And Elisha prays to have his servant's eyes open. And when he looks up, there are chariots and horses of fire surrounding the army. God's army is there. His army is in place. You cannot thwart God's plans. He is more powerful. Nehemiah and Esther, against all odds, facing death. God protecting them because of their faith, their courage. Same with the prophets all the way through the New Testament and the birth of Christ. And we see Herod, same type of thing that you're going to see with, with, with Pharaoh here, saying, let's, let's kill all the newborns, let's kill all the males, let's stop this progress, let's stop this God from multiplying and from his people from taking us over. Ultimately, he doesn't even realize he's, he's, he's trying to stop a deliverer of God's people. And we see Herod doing the same thing in Matthew. In the story of the birth of Christ, Herod gets wind of this, this savior, this king of the Jews that is coming. And so what does he do? He tells the wise men, hey, you know, when, when you go there, let me know what's going on. Let me know where he's at, right? Come, come give me news. And, and so they go and they, they worship. And, and then what happens? They, in a dream, they're told, don't go back to Herod. Go somewhere. Go back home. And Herod finds out that he was tricked by the wise men. So then what does Herod do? The same plan, right? He's, he's following the same satanic playbook here. He became furious, and he sent to have all the male children killed. But God circumvented all that. God overruled all that. He appeared to Joseph in a dream, take your son, take your wife, go to Egypt. Once Herod died, take your son, take your wife, go to Galilee, city of Nazareth. Why? Because he's fulfilling the prophets. Because God already knew it was going to happen. Because God's in control of all of this. He's the living God. He's the same God today. Every time the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, he would turn their scheming words and their traps right back on them. We, can, we see this as we continue on with Peter's rescue from prison. Paul and Silas praying and singing until an earthquake shook the foundations of their prison. It doesn't, every time they, they try to lock up God's people and God's servants and God's messengers, the, the gospel keeps going out. Paul, we're going to put you in chains. We're going to bind you. We're going to put you in prison so you can't do any more harm, Right? And God says, well, you're, 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 bounding, you're, you're binding my servant and putting him in prison, but I'm sending him to spread the gospel. And he's in prison, and he's sharing with the guards, and he's sharing with other people, and then he's writing prison epistles. He's writing God's word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we get four of them. We get Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, that are now still something that we as the church continue to read for our edification and our encouragement. Why? Because some... Some man in authority, some important person thought that they could stop what God was doing. And look at it now. Look where we're, They just gave Paul a, a retreat to do some extra writing. They just gave him a break. Here, just sit and just, you just, just focus, Paul. I'm going to give you some food, and you'll, you'll, have plenty of, you know, you'll have plenty of visitors, and just take some time. I need you to write some stuff out for me. This is who he is. Every attempt to silence the gospel to... Push down God's people 
results in God's word being spread. Does that encourage you this morning? With all that's going on in the world around us? We should be expectant. We should be worshipful because God's in control of all of this. He can't be stopped. His church can't be stopped. (laughs) They don't know what they're doing, right? Those in power, those with evil intent, it's the same story. It's the same King of Egypt story. The very people that were blessing Egypt, that were blessing Pharaoh by, their, by, the, by the strength of their number through economic capacity, through being able to just, just flourish as a region, were the very people he was trying to cut off and stop out of conviction, out of fear. And, and us as God's people today, we are to be salt and light. We are to help a dark and dying world. We are to, to stave off the decay that is happening, to bring flavor to this world as salt, right? Or to preserve. And God's grace, we, we bring blessing to people that we're around. And we are to bring light. We bring the light of the gospel. We carry Jesus Christ with us. And there's goodness in that. And people, some people are drawn to that. Others are repelled by it. But ultimately, there is a grace when God's people are still here, when we're here, when we go out into our workplaces and our neighborhoods and we provide words of encouragement, words of life. And so people are drawn to that to some degree, but at the same time, that same grace comes the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us and that same Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin. And so now they want us to turn the light off. They want to keep doing things in the dark. They want to stop God's people. And so when you see on the news that in California they're reverting backwards and telling people you can't sing in church. And and here's the unscientific data that keeps moving every week to tell you that you can't do that. But you can't sit, you can go to the church building, we'll let you do that, but you really can't do anything that the church would normally do. You can't fellowship, you can't be around people, you can't sing, right? But we're going to let thousands upon thousands of protesters in every major city in our state continue to speak whatever they want, whenever they want. Don't be surprised by that. That's, that's the history of man. Always trying to, without even realizing at a time, stop the progress of God and his people. They're threatened by it. They don't understand it. They will try to subdue it. But the history of God is whenever you do that, God's people will grow. His word will go out. People will hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It will always work against them. So be encouraged. Be in prayer. We're people of prayer. God uses our prayer to usher in his kingdom on this earth. But don't be discouraged. Too many Christians are discouraged walking around because they're reading the news feeds and they're watching the news more than they're reading the Bible. I just went through all these stories this week and I, I, this could have been a sermon by itself, but because I have a second page, well, I guess we'll finish here, but there's so many. I mean, I have all these things marked out because I can't stop looking at all the things that God has done. I might as well just buy a gigantic sticky note and just stick it on the, on the whole thing. It's the whole thing. All we have to do is read it and spend time with it and ask God about it and we will be encouraged. And we will not walk with our heads down, but as God lifts our head when we repent and seek him first, he will give us everything we need.
And there will be times like these midwives when we are asked to do things that are against the law and the will of God. And we have the right and the responsibility to deny those things, to not, to not conform. We have to be wise with that and how we do it. But if something is completely contradictory to God's law and God's will, God's good purposes, we as God's people have to say no. We have to fear God and not man. One last story before we close. Acts chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 5. We'll, we'll finish with this story. With the midwives and with the apostles and all the stories we read and for our lives too, fearing God leads to good decisions and fearing God leads to good outcomes. We make better decisions. There are good outcomes when we fear the Lord, even if we can't see it. Acts chapter 5, we'll start in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Verse 17, and we see here what happens when, once again, God is circumventing man's desire to stop and to oppress. God continues to multiply and to grow, to do his work anyway. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with them. So there's always a high priest. There's always someone who rises up in opposition. There's always someone. Don't be surprised by that. And all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So trying to stop God's work. We'll stop them. This is, they're, 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 they're going through the playbook, Right? But, verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, of this Jesus. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So big to do. Let's get all the power people in place. Let's get all the political power we can muster. Let's get everyone in place to deal with these agitators. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, these, the men whom we put in the prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him in his right hand as leader. <laughs> they just told them, don't talk about this Jesus. Don't say anything about him. And they're like, well, we must obey God. And then they start talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel again right in front of all these men, right? All these important people. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. There was a resurrection. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so he is the Holy, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard they were enraged and wanted to kill them, playbook, right? Imprisonment, oppression, that's not working, let's just kill them. That's the next step. But God had other plans. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Do you see this pattern? Do you see they couldn't kill them because this man of honor said, if this is not of God, it's going to fail. Anything that's happening right now in the news, anything, any, any endeavor, any, any resistance, any political movements, any, anything that is not of God will fail. Because they don't have a Savior who rose from the dead. But if this is of God... It will last just as the church continues to grow, just as we are here today because of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome that the scriptures talk about this, how relevant this is for us? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they do not ceasing, cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That is our job. That is our charge. In the midst of all opposition, in the midst of the potential for imprisonment, for financial strain, for any type of struggle or obstacle the world will bring against us. We are to continue sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our charge. That is why we're here. Our time is short here. Our life is but a mist. We are not here very long. God is, God is providing opportunities for us to do this work. Our reward is in heaven. It's not here. Let us be people of the word. Let us understand who God is, who we are in light of that. Let us repent of our sin. Let us seek him first. Let us fear him above all other things. Let us fear God and nothing else. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. It is by the hearing of your word that we have been saved. It is by the reading and the hearing and the studying of your word, Lord, that we are sanctified, that we are made holy, we are made like your son. And we desire that above all things, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for fearing man, for fearing circumstances, for fearing other things in this world that have no lasting value, Lord. May we fear you only, the holy and living God. May we seek you only, Jesus. You're the only one with words of life. Where else can we go? Your disciples knew that. When everyone else left, when you, when you shared difficult things, when you shared the cost of following you, which was certainly a, it's certainly a great cost, it's, it's us giving up our lives. But if we think about it, Lord, we're, we're gaining so much more. We're gaining true life with you. I love that they said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Lord, you're the only one. Help us to stop seeking for comfort. Stop seeking for um, a sense of normalcy in this world. This is not our home. Right now, Lord, a lot of us feel a lot of dissonance. We don't, things are just not comfortable. Things are chaotic. Things don't feel like they used to, Lord. Our, our pace of life, our rhythm of life has been shaken. Sometimes we're not sure what to do, and we feel a lot of tension. This is the exact time that we are called to be drawn to, to prayer, to come to you, Lord, and say, please help me. I don't know what to do with my day, Lord. Things keep happening, and I'm just not feeling, I feel uneasy. I feel anxious, Father. Help us to cast our cares, our anxieties onto you, Lord Jesus. Please give us peace. We are your people. And Lord, we know you're doing a work in our own day. We long to see you continue to grow your church, expand your kingdom in your own way, in your own timing, Lord. And we know that it's oftentimes it comes through the suffering of your people. Give us strength to endure. Help us, Father, to be faithful. We're so thankful for you, Lord, and thank you so much for the freedoms you provide in your Son, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.